Hello, this is Mr. Galley from GCSE English Revision Pod with a quick message for you. If you want even more English Revision Pod in your ears, you can now subscribe to our premium service, GCSE English Revision Pod Plus, where for the price of just over £2 a month, on top of all the amazing free episodes, which will continue to be free and there for you to use, you can also get a selection of amazing bonus episodes on things like Macbeth, A Christmas Carol, Romeo and Juliet, and all your favourite topics covered in the depth and detail that you are used to. If you are interested in getting even more GCSE English Revision Pod, all you've got to do is click the link at the top of this episode description, where you can subscribe to GCSE. English Revision Pod Plus. Hello and welcome to the latest episode of GCSC Revision Pod. We are back in the recording studio, aka Mr. Forster's car. My place name is of Mr. dreams. Exactly where where the I don't want to say where the magic happens, <laughs> but where the where the literary magic happens. And today we are um, going to be looking at. Uh, JB Priestley's play and Inspector Calls for our second episode. However, before we get into that, I should remind you that as ever, you can download the handout that we will be using for this episode from the link in the bio. As well as that, you can email us on Mr. Forster. I'm on EnglishRevisionPod at gmail.com. So fantastic. So any questions that you have, anything you'd like us to develop further, or any episodes that you'd like us to. Uh, record in the future please let us know on the email and we will do our best to uh, to help you out with that so today sir we're going back into um jb Priestley's critique on the class structure of britain in an inspector calls yeah i thought for a bit of variation we'd do a theme question today rather than a character question Great. and as we said last lesson character questions are very similar so our, our podcast about sheila the structure from that could be applied to most of the characters Certainly. in the play. So when analysing characters, you look at them. How, what are they like at the beginning? What are they like when the inspector questions them? And, and how do they change or how do they not change at the end? So the question we're going to look at today, though, is slightly different. Discuss how Priestley presents class divisions in an inspector calls. Excellent. Now, this is a, a key theme in the play. Class, a huge issue today a huge issue back then and very much what the play was about in many ways. Yes, I think the first thing we need to kind of remind ourselves of course the play is written in 1945 and set in 1912 just before the First World War Right, and this is a time when class divisions were perhaps um, more defined than they are in our society and what students need to avoid is making generalisations about the upper class, the middle class the working class because actually the divisions are are actually slightly broader so I, I like to use the plural and talk about the upper classes the middle okay. class is because actually even the middle classes can be divided into different types and we'll talk about this in, in a moment as we kind of have an introduction to the question so students would do themselves a disservice they would perhaps damage their answer by simplifying the class system yeah. and certainly it's a mistake to see the burlings as upper class so um It's a 1945 play. It explores the class divisions of late Edwardian Mm. society. And it does this through the inspector's questioning of the upper middle class Burling family. Right. So straight away we're going into one of those subsections. Yeah. And then the aristocrat, Gerald Croft. Mm. So Gerald Croft is of the upper classes. He's a social superior to the Burlings. He's genuinely in the kind of what we would think of as the real sort of... The Made in Chelsea. The Made in Chelsea group. Yes, one of of my... uh, Certainly top five television programmes, if not, if not top three, perhaps. Sir. Um, and in Inspector Ghoul, he arrives in the, in the Burling household as they're celebrating Gerald's uh, engagement to Mr Burling's daughter, Sheila. Mm-hmm. 
Um, and what in the inspector proves is that their lives are intertwined. That's a metaphor that he uses throughout the poem, becomes really important, with the lives not only of Eva Smith, this working-class girl mm-hmm. who commits suicide tragically um, before the play begins, but also with the lives of the lower classes in general. So, so by the final act, it becomes clear that Priestley's message, his didactic message, is that Eva Smith... She represents. She says every man figure representing the lower social classes who, 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 who did have a terrible position in society at the, at the start of the twentieth century. Right. Students would make a huge mistake thinking this was only a play about a single girl who was yeah. abused by a single family. It's yeah. much broader than that. The inspector's message is the the need for meaningful social change. Um, to break down the class divisions that were so prevalent at the beginning of the 20th century. Right. And those of you who listen to our um, Christmas Carol podcast, I suppose this is what we meant when we were talking about Dickens's message not being a message of real change. It was actually kind of a hollow message. Priestley's message then, would you say that's a much more sincere call for society yeah, to be different? Uh, and we certainly see this in the inspector's final speech, but let's not get ahead of ourselves. I, of course. I uh, we'll I come to that later on. So I think the most obvious place to start, the first paragraph to start this essay, is to talk about the divide between the wealthy and the poor, between the the upper middle classes and the upper classes and the working class Eva Smith. Okay, so we're starting with perhaps the most obvious message about class in the play, uh, sorry, about class in the play, which is this this vast difference between those who have and those who have not. Yeah, and I see. I think we see this in the inspector's characterisation of Eva Smith's vulnerability. Okay, um, uh, she, her suicide represents you know, the the ultimate uh, link in a chain of events that that. That all of the Burlings ultimately take part in. So, I mean, let's look for a moment at Mr. Burling. Okay. So, I think one thing that's important about um, Priestley's portrayal of the upper middle classes, Mr. Burling, is is the kind of world they live in. So, the opening stage directions to the play describe the Burling household not only as being this place of luxurious um, furniture and, and mm. champagne glasses, and um, but also is the the lighting is described as being pink. And intimate, right? Comfortable lighting. Yeah. So, so the connotations of this it suggests that almost that the, the world they live in isn't reality. It's protected. It's protected. <coughs> it's away from the the harsh reality of of Edwardian society. Right. But significantly, Priestley notes in these opening stage directions that when the inspector appears on stage, the lighting should become brighter and harder, which is an obvious metaphor for his function in the play, shining the light of reality on this mm. insular middle-class world to show them actually that outside the bubble of their, their wealth, outside the bubble of their privilege, there is real suffering. So what you're saying is through the stage directions we can see that they live in an almost artificial world yeah. that they've created for themselves where they can ignore the wider picture, they can ignore what's going on, they can ignore the suffering of the poor, but the inspector brings with him the kind of harsh light from which they can no longer hide. And this is there's a great AO3 point to bring in here, a great contextual point, which we talked about last week, but I'm going to repeat mm. it anyway because I think it's a really useful one to know. In the most famous production of the play, this divide was even more apparent. So the production that started at the National Theatre in 1992 was revived recently. Mr Galley saw it as he bragged last time. Mm. Um, uh, I enjoyed it. Uh, Stephen Daldry tried to get this across through the set. The Burlings appeared on stage in what looked like a doll's house. All mm. of the play took place in what, what looked like you know an open doll's house. And, and surrounding this doll's house was what, the, what looked very much like this desolate landscape that was evocative of London during the Blitz, mm. during the Second World War. And there's children who look very poor running around in the yeah. smoke and in the rubble. And it's interesting because at first, I don't want to talk about the play too much, obviously, but it's interesting because 
at first glance you might think oh they're wasting most of the stage by having that but what very very much becomes clear as soon as you start watching it is that these people are living in this bubble they are protected by their wealth from the realities of the world around them and by the end of the play it becomes a metaphor for the class divisions because at the end of the play once the Burlings have left the stage um, the set explodes the doll's house explodes Mm. which for Doldry the the director was a metaphor for the two world wars breaking down exploding the class divisions and forcing people like the Burlings to, to accept the reality of the world outside their wealth, outside their privilege. Fantastic. So should we talk about the way that Mr. Burling then goes on to talk about his relationship with the people who work for yeah. him? Yeah. In Act 1, he says that um, when, when in being questioned by the inspector, he's unapologetic about um, not paying his workers more. He says it was his duty to keep labour costs down mm. by refusing them a pay rise even though his daughter recognises that these girls aren't cheap labour, they're people. So um, Sheila subverts this this um, dehumanisation of these women, this the suggestion in this abstract noun phrase that they're a labour cost. Mm-hmm. She she subverts that. She she recognises how damaging that is. But of course, Mr. Bur- Burling does not. I would go. I would just go back slightly and think that that word duty is a fantastic yeah. one to zoom in on. Particularly when we contrast this with the inspector's sense of duty. Mm-hmm. His duty is not to people. It's not to the poor. It's not to the lower classes. His duty is to this abstract notion of capital, of, of right. money. And also what does that mean? It means his own wealth. So Mr. Burning's almost saying that he would be letting something down by not pursuing the greatest profit he possibly can. Yeah. That's his duty in life, precisely. to make as much money as he can. And I think combined with the dramatic irony that runs throughout the opening of Act One, um, he's clearly portrayed by Priestley as this ridiculous figure. So his comments on world, a, a war being impossible, his comments yep. on strike action being impossible, the Titanic, the Titanic being, unsinkable. being unsinkable, all of these um, set up uh, an audience that's being critical of his worldview. So when he talks about labour costs, when he talks about, when he, when he dehumanises these working class girls, we as the audience are clearly meant to disagree with him. Yes. He's being undermined by Priestley. So that would be, that would be what a top level essay would do, I suppose, would link the idea of what Mr. Burning says about the class division with the sense of dramatic irony and say that right from the start, Priestley is using that dramatic irony that makes us think Mr. Burling is a bit of an idiot to, by extension, show us that his views are also yeah, idiotic. I think, um, particularly because he is uh, the archetype of the late Edwardian businessman. So what do you mean a, by archetype? We put sir? this on the key vocabulary sheet, um, but archetype means like the almost a almost like a comes to represent. He's right. almost the the most typical businessman we could imagine. So when you think of that thing, the picture you yeah. immediately get in your head of that thing, and, and therefore his insular. So that means ignorant. His insular views mm-hmm. and his intransigent. Another very good word meaning refusing to change your views. Is, so his insular and intransigent view of the world um, comes to represent. Precisely what Priestley has been critical about in the middle and upper classes. In the, in the pe- class system. Pe- people that won't change their mind. People that mm. won't accept the reality. Okay. I think that would be a fairly solid paragraph to start us up with. Should Definitely. we now move on to the representation of Gerald and Mrs. Burling? Yeah, because I think any sophisticated essay would not simply look at the divide between Eva Smith and the Burlings and Gerald. That's but, too easy. But would, would also consider, yeah, the, 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 the other um, class division that exists between the Crofts and the Burlings. Now this is much more, sorry sir, to jump in on you, this is much more subtle, isn't it? Yeah, because it characterises the difference between the upper middle classes Mm -hmm. and the aristocrats, people like Gerald. Of course, Gerald is um, the son of a lord, 
Right, so he's actually part of the sort of extended royal family. Not quite. So, no. um, um, the Lord Lord Croft is—he's not a royal, but um, he's certainly of a, of a higher social class than Mister Burling. Right, and Mister Burling is a very aspirational character, isn't he? He wants to climb these social ladders. Yeah, he has a lot of money, and so when we're thinking about social class, particularly in the Edwardian period, we mm. should not equate it entirely with money. It's about more than that. It's about blood. It's about um, how how. You know, there's this concept of new money. If you want to see a great example of this, watch the Titanic. There's a brilliant moment when this rich American woman sits down at the table with the the wealthy English aristocrats, and they're all so uncomfortable because she's not one of them. And they just they actually call her new money, don't they? They describe her as new money, which shows that another nuance, another subtlety within the class system that I think Mr. Forster is exploring is this idea that yes, money alone is not enough. Yeah, and I think and let's look at a great example of this in Act One. So. even before the arrival of the inspector, Mr. Burling is quick to reassure Gerald that despite their class differences, he should be confident in a match with Sheila because, he says, there is a very good chance of a knighthood for him mm. in this very year. And he tries to show his sophistication by saying that the port they're drinking is the same port that Lord Croft buys. Right. Yeah, I think most disturbingly is how um, he sees Sheila's engagement to Gerald as a business merger. The metaphors he uses, he says, this is an opportunity for lower costs and higher prices. That's what every every young girl dreams of from their wedding day, Just imagine, you know, your wedding, um, uh, your dad stands up and says, this is a great opportunity for me to earn more money. Yeah, absolutely. uh, (laughs) Incredible. It's another example, I think, of Priestley showing how selfish the class system was, how actually, how Mr. Burling's desire to become part of Gerald's world um, means that he only focuses on himself. Right. So it's it's interesting what you're saying, and I'm just wondering how we fit that into the kind of AO1 argument of the second paragraph. So what are we actually saying about class division through this representation? Yeah, we're saying that actually Priestley is criticising the way in which um, people like Mr Burling, the upper middle classes, would aspire to, to be mm. part of the privileged world of the aristocrats without considering those who are less fortunate than themselves. So it's, it's the idea that everyone's looking up, not looking down. Yeah, it's the idea that they're, they're looking in this selfish way for what they can get rather than considering society as a community mm. where we actually should be looking to help those less fortunate. Much the same way that the other 19 teams in the Premier League have to look up whereas Liverpool can only look <laughs> down uh, beneath them at this point in time. Yeah, I, I think that's... Um... famously they never choke. So, um, <laughs> moving beyond our football discussion, I think there's a few mm. points we can say here that actually even Mrs Burling is noted to be her husband's social superior. In the stage directions, Mr Burling is, is called provincial okay. in his speech. So we still in just to be clear, we still in paragraph two. At yeah, this no, point. I, th- I think right. so. I think I think the third paragraph. I want to focus on something slightly different. So okay, we can acknowledge that even in the Burling's relationship, Mrs. Burling is superior to her husband. Right, he's provincial. Um, and provincial and, means so not of the city. You know, he, right. he speaks a bit. He's, he's a bit common. Oh my goodness. <laughs> um, certainly not someone I'd hang around. I was going to say something you often accuse me of, <laughs> of being. Yes. Well, when you say no one, instead of no. <laughs> um, and um, and she tells him off for complimenting the chef. Right. Suggesting that, again, it's, there's more than money to social class. So a, per- a person of true upper class wouldn't do something as common Precisely. and vulgar as complimenting the chef. My goodness. Precisely. Um, and, and again, and what is that re- critique really showing? That the, the, the upper classes should not should not mix with the lower classes. Okay. So if we before we move on to paragraph three then, so to sort of to go back over the essay, paragraph one, the obvious clear division between... Eva the, Smith. Eva Smith and those who have things like Mr. Burling in the world and the lack of care 
that yeah. those in the upper classes show those in the yeah. working classes. Second paragraph, we then move on to the slightly more subtle idea that Priestley even shows aspiration within the upper middle classes trying to join this um, this next class up in the way. Everyone's climbing, everyone's only thinking of and, themselves. And no one's thinking of, of those less fortunate. Right, it's all this kind of race to the top, horrible... Yeah uncompassionate world he's created. So I think then the final paragraph we have to consider the figure of the inspector Brilliant. who is of course at the heart of this play and he comes to function as a mouthpiece for Priestley himself. He comes to represent Priestley's world view mm. and therefore what the inspector's function really is in the play is that he is empathetic, empathetic to the plight of people like Eva Smith. He, <coughs> he undermines um, Mr Burling's selfish attitude. So to put it in quite simplistic terms, the first two paragraphs would be saying, here's what the problem is, and then yep. the third paragraph would be, and here's how the inspector suggests a solution yep. to that problem. Exactly. And I think when we're looking at this, I think the, the best point to analyse for our AO2 would be looking at his final speech. Okay. Um, so he, the, the, the play ends after showing how each of the Burlings, along with Gerald, they're implicated in Eva Smith's suicide. Mm-hmm. He ends with a speech in which he outlines how There are millions and millions and millions of Eva Smiths and John Smiths left with us, with their lives, their hopes and fears, their suffering and chance of happiness, all intertwined with our lives. Very good. The use of abstract nouns is quite interesting there, isn't it? Yeah. um, Explain what you mean by that. Well, I mean these kind of ideas of their hopes and their fears. You know, their lives obviously is something kind of tangible, something that we can we can sort of sort of see, if you know what I mean. Whereas their hopes and their fears, it's almost as if someone like Mrs. Burling, for example, would not have even considered that they have hopes and fears. You know, that yeah. she sees herself we as so We certainly see superior. that in her interactions with Eva Smith. Right. When Eva Smith comes to her for help. She's giving herself ridiculous airs and graces yeah. that she had no right to do, basically saying she didn't have a right to those emotions. Yeah. And I think the other thing to look at is the metaphorical idea of the lives of different social classes being intertwined. Ooh. Because the suggestion there, metaphorically, is that they are combined, they're joined together. It's like when he speaks earlier about a chain of events. Okay. The idea that everything is connected. And unlike Mr. Burling, who is only looking up, only looking to improve his social position, um, the inspector is acknowledging that everybody of any social class are interdependent. Their lives are intertwined. Fantastic. It's interesting what you say about... um the word interwines which we've got in the handout linking back to the metaphor of the chain because one thing we see in the examiners kind of reports every year is they love it when students are able to move fluently around the play yeah so if you're writing about that um idea of our lives being metaphorically intertwined and you then link that yeah you could could say a a metaphor which picks up on his earlier image where he talks about a chain of events and it's only one clause within your sentence but in that one clause that you could separate with commas it doesn't even have to be part of your main argument you have shown your knowledge and your ability to move around the (laughs) Mr Forster's demonstrating exactly what the upper classes do you know laughing at my provincial uh I can't even remember the word. What do you call it? <laughs> the way you say things. Uh, your dialect. That's the one. All right. And your accent, of course. Yes. So, um, the second thing we want to look on, look at here is in this final speech, he then moves on to talk about how we are members of one body, mm-hmm. which is a metaphor that draws upon the language of Christianity, the language of the Eucharist. Okay. Um, uh, but, crucially, relig- this play is not a religious play. So what no. actually he does is he takes this re- the religious associations of this phrase mm. and transforms himself into a secular preacher. A preacher not of religion, Outside but of, of, religion. Of, of socialism. Right. A preacher of humanism. A preacher of the need for society to look after one another. Is he, in a sense, saying that we've, we've spent all these years 
worrying from a kind of religious viewpoint about the idea of hell and the afterlife and punishment and all that kind of thing. And what he's saying is that actually that is a lot closer than the afterlife. That is something that we are bringing existence to existence yeah. on Earth. And we see the same We see the same imagery, again, to pick up on your point here. Um, the, the, the imagery in his, at the end of the speech is apocalyptic. So mm. it seems to connote the book of Revelation in the Bible or the end of the world. Because he speaks of how if men will not learn that lesson, then they will be taught it in fire and blood and anguish. That sounds terrible. Yes, and I think for an audience watching this in 1945, who potentially have lived through two world wars, mm. the most horrific events in, in human history in terms of the loss of life, right. um, this would have real resonances. Because the implication is, according to the inspector, that it's these class divisions, it's the, this divide between the wealthy and the poor that, according to him, has brought about this fire and blood and anguish. Right. It, social class for Priestley is at, is at the root of suffering. That's really, uh, that would be potentially a great point to end on. What do you think? Well, yeah, I think, I mean, we could, one final AO3, just a cheeky AO3 to chuck it in, <laughs> um, is that, of course, um, that this is a message also of hope, though, because in 1945, we have the first Labour Prime Minister. We have Clement Attlee voted in. And therefore, whilst the younger Burling, the older Burlings do not heed this message mm -hmm. significantly, Sheila and Eric, the younger generation, they do listen. So, in, oh, sorry, sir. And, and, and they're the generation that will live through the two world wars, who will, of course, live through a time in which the class divisions will to a certain extent be, be broken down and but start to become more much fluid. more to do I suppose of course I mean there is still, you know, I think the last thing in our conclusion is to note mm. that of course this is a play that's equally relevant today yeah. you know under austerity uh, over the recent years the class divisions have become in fact uh, you know have become broader I think become, I read recently the divide between rich and poor has never been bigger uh, certainly, uh, never. I think it's certainly never since the eighties. I'm not sure right. beyond that, okay. but 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 certainly, it's a play that I think we could conclude has particular resonances for an audience today, living in a time of austerity, living in a time mm. when that divide between the rich and the poor is again um, very great. That gives you a fantastic contextual aspect, really, doesn't it? Because not only can you write about when it was written, not only when can you write about when it was set you can also then link both of those to a modern audience's interpretation yeah and perhaps we need our own inspector to come in and shake things up a bit do you think is that a role you'd be willing to fill sir I, I don't feel I quite have the gravitas I think I should I need to be shown the way that's a shame well email us email if you think you are perhaps the uh, the modern inspector we need to make the world a better place or alternatively email us with your suggestions for things you'd like us to talk about we are planning I believe sir to do one more inspector calls and one more Christmas carols so that will give you three podcasts dealing with all the texts we've covered so far three for Romeo and Juliet three for Jekyll and Hyde three for Christmas we'll come carols, back to them later on but we're getting yeah. a good start with those and then after that we might move on to poetry bit of poetry oh, the, the future's looking so bright for, uh, there's no apocalyptic imagery in our, no, so, our world <laughs> alright thank you very much for joining us and we will see you next time <laughs>